So what we're currently actually doing is, is um, we're looking over the details of what is called a doxology. Um, that is a song that glorifies God. And in this particular doxology, chapter 25 and 26 of Isaiah, uh, God is being glorified for his righteous judgment okay, of the wicked. And he's being glorified for his faithfulness to deliver the nation of Israel. And the context from which the doxology emerges uh, actually began in chapter 13, uh, the judgment of the nations, and, and Israel was included in there because uh, she has rarely historically been without sin. And because God is just, he <clears throat> deals with all sin. But the, the doxology is looking back at what Isaiah talked about in chapter 13 all the way to chapter 24. And... Um, yeah, it's, there's not, I don't know of any other occurrence quite like this in the scriptures. Not where there's not doxology for the same reason, but that's a lot of chapters. It's a huge context from chapter 13 to chapter 26. It's covering a lot of ground. And um, chapter 25 is Isaiah's exaltation of God for what he has done in his faithfulness and also for what he will do in his faithfulness, both in judgment and in the deliverance of Israel. Chapter 26 is a prophecy about a doxology. He's prophesying about how the nation of Israel will give glory to God in the future for judging her enemies and the wicked and, uh, and for rescuing them. But even though it's in the far distant future, uh, as we know, referring to the final judgment, because he's talking about the judgment of the entire earth, Isaiah says that he plans to be among those who sing this song, and we'll see why at the end, why he intends to be a part of this far distant doxology, well beyond his death, why he plans to be there singing. So as I said, we got as far as verse 4 last week, where Isaiah uh, assured God's people that God will keep them in perfect peace as their minds are stayed on the Lord, trusting in him. Um, <clears throat> as we know, circumstances uh, ebb and flow, uh, trials come and go, but the one who trusts in the Lord, he says they're not going to be moved. We know they won't be moved in spirit. They won't be moved in um, their mind. Um, the, the person that has their mind stayed on the Lord, they're going to suffer just like everyone else, but he's not going to lose his hope through what he suffers. He's not going to lose his mind, as Isaiah says. So with that assurance, uh, Isaiah returns to this prophecy of a doxology uh, in a future, at a future time with judgment and deliverance. So um, why don't we pray? Because I know you guys read ahead, even though I read it all to you last week. Uh, if you want to stand up, you can to join me in prayer. <clears throat> well, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, your prophetic word is, is valuable to us. It not only tells us that you know the end from the beginning, you know all the details in between. It lets us know that you're in sovereign control of everything in the world, that nothing is, is spiraling into chaos, in spite of the midterms, and, um, but Lord, you're leading it, you're guiding it to 
both a revealed and intended end. Uh, Lord, we get to see the fulfillment of your promises in advance, uh, even as we wait for them to be completely realized. And um, yeah, so thank you, Lord, that we have the promise of your word, the hope of the future. So teach us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah, go ahead and be seated. All right. So I am going to, um, through here, you'll see some other versions come up on the screen. And uh, I'll probably mention again, but uh, the New King James translators, I'm not sure why they thought that putting what they translated into print was helpful, uh, because it's not. Uh, I th- you know, the translation process is very difficult, so I don't want to criticize translators too much, uh, but sometimes I think that their, the intellect up here doesn't help them translate the people like me out here. And uh, so sometimes what they render in the text is not clear, so it's better to go to another translation and go, oh, that's, that's what that means. And uh, so I'll refer to a couple of different translations later on. And um, if you have the New King James and you compare it to what's on the screen, you'll go, oh, that's why. And uh, so uh, I, I prefer the New King James, but I'm not under the uh, notion that it's a superior translation over all other translations. There is a, a group of good ones out there, uh, the New King James, the New American Standard, the English Standard Version. And for various reasons, the NIV is, is great as well. So... As far as translations, those are probably the only ones I think are what we would call good translations. I think there's some other okay ones out there, but there's a reason why those ones are pretty standard in the evangelical community. So anyway, um, let's get into the text. So from the assurance of those who trust in the Lord back to the subject matter, it says, for he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city, he lays it low, he lays it low to the ground, he brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. So these two opposing groups in scripture, <clears throat> uh, frequently seen as uh, what we have as the oppressor, we have the oppressed, the poor and needy are those uh, who are the victims of injustice and evil, those who are are on high, those who are in the lofty place. But at the time of the judgment, the mighty are going to be defeated by the vulnerable. Because at that time, God is going to raise them up. He's going to give them strength. And uh, so it's going to be a change of events in the end. Things will be very different. And, and if God is for them, no one can stand against them. And that's what's going to happen. He says, the way of the just is uprightness. O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our souls is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Certainly not a current situation, is it? Not even close. So Isaiah says that his soul uh, and also the soul of his nation, he says, is filled with desire for God and his righteousness 
to fill the earth. And as our context reveals, it's in this time of trouble and distress that has actually filled their souls with desire for God. Do you find that to be true in your own experience? Uh, When do you seek God most heartily? I think there was a giggling consensus in there. Uh, You know, C.S. Lewis was the one that says that God shouts to us in our pain. And uh, we have a tendency to be more earnestly seeking him when things are not going well, whether for us or for someone else. Uh, That's been true of our church of late as um, we've had so many people ill, so many people injured. Many people have been fasting and seeking God's face. Now, that is a normal thing, and I also think that it's good. Uh, Not that we don't, I'm not saying it's good that we don't seek him in the off-season, as it were, uh, but that in when things are difficult, it has a way of drawing us in. And I don't think it's just our difficulty. God is using that to bring uh, his people closer to him. And uh, it's good. It drives us to our knees. It drives us to the throne of grace. And when the author of Hebrews wrote that, he says, in a time of ease. No, he says, in a time of need. So he, even the author of Hebrews understands that it, it's at those times of need that we most earnestly seek the Lord. And God is available and he's gracious at those times. And for that reason, uh, I think that we need to be thankful for uh, difficulty, for suffering, for all of those things. Now, I've probably mentioned before, uh, when I was a young pastor, when you're really a young pastor, like 26, nothing you say is true. <laughs> Even if you're quoting scripture verbatim, it's just not true uh, to an older generation. And uh, <clears throat> I had been studying um, thankfulness in the New Testament and the different circumstances surrounding it. And uh, I had mentioned in a Bible study where, of course, I was the youngest person by 50 years or so. And I said that, you know, God has called us to be thankful for all things. And an elderly lady says, no, we're supposed to be thankful in all things. And I said, well, yeah, that, Paul says that in here, but he also says that we're to be thankful for all things. And she said, no, he didn't. And I'm like my mom. And so I was like, yes, he did. <laughs> we're to be thankful for all things. And there are reasons to be thankful for suffering. It's because God is available to us. He uses that to draw us into himself. And uh, I don't believe that God looks down on us for when we go to him in our mess. I don't think that he does. I don't think that he's critical of us. Um, I think he actually is intentionally using the mess whether uh, it's a self-inflicted mess or it's no fault of our own. He uses trouble to draw us in and bring us close to him. And uh, hopefully through that experience, it makes us more faithful. It makes us more loyal to him. But David says, God knows our frame, that we're made of weakness. We're made of vulnerability. And uh, so it, it, we, we require different stuff to make us faithful. And suffering seems to be one of the best of all. Um, if you think about some of the different things, uh, think about why you, um, uh, of course, God originally drew you, but why did you seek the Savior? Because of sin. The, the thing that, is, that causes the most trouble for humanity than anything. Uh, but that's why we originally went to God to come to him for deliverance from the penalty of sin. Uh, It's because of injustice that we cry out to the one who is just. It's because of our want of mercy that we look to the merciful one. It's because of sickness 
that we seek the one who heals. And it's because of death that we trust the only one who raises the dead. Um, You can put any kind of trouble in there uh, as to the reason why you seek after God more heartily. So he uses that. And um, the good that comes out of these evils is fellowship. It's dependence on God. But what evil ultimately causes us to long for is the day that God's judgments are in the earth. Because when they are, uh, the text is saying righteousness will prevail and the symptoms of evil will vanish. You know, just as in Isaiah 2, as it predicts, it says all the nations will begin to gather to Jerusalem to learn the word of the Lord, to be able to walk in his ways. At that time, uh, the text says that wars will cease. People will stop learning war craft because there will there'll be no more concern about war. Isaiah 9, 7 says the Messiah will sit on the throne of David and rule from there. Uh, it, it says that to some degree, we see the Edenic state is restored to where the predator and the prey will no longer do each other harm. Uh, and all of that, it seems to suggest that illness and injury will be a thing of the past. And so Isaiah, with great desire, looked forward to all that awaits planet Earth, for God's name to be reverenced by all, and for his judicial oversight to bring righteousness in the earth. You know, I know that many of you guys have, you probably tune into prophecy conferences. Some of you visit uh, prophecy conferences. Some of you maybe have never been to one. Um, But there's many, what we would say, end times things or eschatological things that we all look forward to. I mean, raise your hand if there's not something in the end times uh, that you don't look forward to. You look forward to stuff, right? If, if it's not just the second coming, uh, there's something that you look forward to. And, and I, I've said before, there's many things within the biblical framework of the end that I look forward to, but nothing compares to my desire for Christ's reign. Nothing. Uh, not just over the earth, but over me. Uh, I look forward to the day where Um, that part of me that is broken is gone and that I am like Christ in in his finished work of me, whatever whatever that looks like of me, I desire that and for his perfect rule. I long for his kingdom and um, it's good stuff. So the song continues. He He says, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Okay, so this is one of them, is the beginning of a few that don't read super well. Here's the NASB. I think it's a lot more clear. He says, though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. But when grace is shown to the wicked, this is the NIV, they do not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. So you lavish grace upon grace upon grace to the wicked, and it does no good, is what he's saying. In spite of that, they continue, even in a context, an environment that is utopian, they will continue to sow evil in the world. And that is why there comes a time uh, for the judgment. If if evil thrives where grace is given, 
Something must be done to bring wickedness to an end. You know, the, um, I think it was Freud who said that, you know, given the right environment, um, everything will just be fine. Uh, give people the right strokes and all of that, and, and you'll have uh, good people. Um, well, what about this? The problem is man is born broken morally, and uh, he needs more than just a good environment. He needs redeemed. And if he, if he rejects the Redeemer, he will grow worse and worse. The perfect environment will not reform someone who's broken like that. So judgment is the only solution for some. Goes on, O oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. So when God comes to rescue Israel, that's the time when the wicked are going to see God's zeal for them. That's when they're going to witness it. As, as soon as they, that's Israel, return to him through repentance and faith, God will crush their enemies. Uh, you may be familiar with the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39, and the prophecies where God destroys these, these invading uh, nations that are advancing on Israel. And in, in, the, in God in speaking there, he says, I'm going to show my fury in my face. I'm going to demonstrate over and over my love for Israel, my commitment to Israel. And so in God's wrath, the enemy is going to witness his zeal for his people, that he has made all of these covenants and promises too. Uh, we don't have time to go through Ezekiel 38 and 39. You can probably do that tonight, and hopefully you'll sleep well afterwards. So, oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. You have done it. So ultimately, every benefit experienced by God's people comes from the Lord, whether he does it independent of us or he does it by means of us, or like we would say, instrumentally. I mean, of course, he can either do it himself, uh, or he can use something else to achieve his ends. But at the end of the day, he is to be credited for all of the good. Uh, James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes um, from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. So God works his will uh, into this world, however he chooses. And so he will secure peace for Israel. Uh, and here, apparently, it's by way of Israel. He'll use them uh, as an instrument for peace. I don't know how he intends to do that. O oh Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. So notice the promise here that even the memory of Israel's oppressors will cease. I think that, you know, Messiah's coming and rule will just totally eclipse any memory of past troubles, just everything. He says, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You've expanded all the borders of the land. It's interesting that, you know, since the land promise was made to Abraham, it cycles back through, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way. 
And some people believe that the promise of the land is conditional. Um, but when you look through the promises themselves, it's stated unconditionally. And then even after their greatest sins that they've committed, like sacrificing their children to uh, Molech and committing all forms of idolatry, um, even the, the prophets that speak after the, the Babylonian exile, they are continuing to talk about the promise of the land made to Abraham. And <clears throat> at the time that God judges Israel's enemies, the text here is saying that the, the land, the borders, uh, they will be expanded. Uh, and what's probably going to happen is that the original uh, boundaries of the promise will be secured. Israel has never secured all of the boundaries of the land that God promised to them. Now, this is what's interesting about the land promise. The promise that God would give the land to Abraham and his descendants, it's completely unconditional. It's Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 15, and many more. But living in the land with God's blessing, that was contingent on obedience. The land's yours. I'm not gonna let you enjoy all of its abundance and blessing until you, until you obey me. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20. Yeah. But toward the end, God will redeem ethnic Israel and he will give all of those borders to them. It'll be an exciting day. Verse 16, he says, Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. Again, uh, using circumstances to bring them in. But here it says that uh, God was chastening them to force them to call out to him. Now, is that a historical thing for Israel? Didn't the, the cry go up to God from Egypt? And God says, I have heard their cry. And so I'm going to go redeem them. And then God brings them through the wilderness. He, they come into the land of Israel. Joshua dies. The generation that was alive with Joshua dies. And then Israel begins to stray. And then what does God do? He chastens them by other nations. And we see the same cycle all the way through the book of Judges. Okay, they, they, they get a judge. He delivers them. They're faithful during the life of that judge. Then they go back into idolatry. God brings another nation in, oppresses them, and then they begin to cry out to the Lord. They repent. He brings a judge, and they just do this over and over and over again. And then God does it later with Moab. He does it with Assyria. He does it with Syria. He does it with the Babylonians. He just, nation after nation after nation, is used uh, to bring Israel into chastening so that they'll cry out to, to God. I wonder what God uses in your life to cause you to cry out. Romans 11 says that Israel is currently under God's chastening, under God's chastening. Do you know what Paul says in Romans that God is using this time to draw Israel to himself? The Gentiles. That <clears throat> it's our job to provoke Israel to jealousy. So God has shifted um, his grace and his love to the Gentile through the gospel. And we are enjoying this fellowship with their dad. Okay, we're, we're kind of the adopted ones. Uh, in the text of Romans 11, it's they are the natural branches of the tree and uh, they've been broken off. We are the wild branches grafted into the tree against nature. We're in their place. We're enjoying the the fat of the tree, as it were, 
and God wants to use us to provoke them to be jealous of us so that they will come back. And Romans 11 says he will bring them back. As soon as he's done securing the, the Gentiles that he wants through the gospel, uh, then he will draw all Israel. He says all Israel will be saved, and uh, that'll be good. And then on that day, Israel is going to sing Isaiah 26. That's the time of when Isaiah is prophesying that they will sing. Verse 17 says, As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So for all of Israel's striving in rebellion, they have accomplished nothing. They've only given birth, they say, uh, as Isaiah says, is to wind. All of their troubles, all their efforts, it's been worthless. And then since the rejection of Christ, they've been spiritually dead as a nation. And to this day, they're perishing without him. But that's not the end of the story. Otherwise, Isaiah couldn't prophesy about their future rejoicing. He says, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and what? And sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. As I said in the beginning, Isaiah fully anticipates to sing with the nation after his death because he knows that he will rise again from the dead at the appointed time and at the resurrection of the faithful dead and the faithful living at the time of the judgment, this song will erupt from Israel. He says, your dead and me, we will arise. And what does he say they'll do? They'll sing. Isaiah is prophesying about his future singing with faithful Israel. It's very interesting. You have all faithful believers who died in the past, they will rise. And all of those faithful Jews who lived during the time of God's judgment, they will come together and they will sing this new song. So what is uh, also here that is interesting is this is one of very few references to the resurrection in the Old Testament. There's not very many of them. Uh, there's one in Job 19.25, uh, that's the earliest one. David provides one that is actually used for an argument for the resurrection of Messiah in Psalm 16.10. There's Hosea 13.14, and then there's Daniel 12, verse 2. Um, those are about the only passages in all of the Old Testament that talk about the resurrection. If you want those again, it's Job 19.25, Psalm 16.10. Here, of course, Isaiah 26.19. Uh, Hosea 13, 14, and then Daniel 12, 2. Yeah. But I mean, that's, I mean, how many times does God have to say it? Uh, that's plenty of times to uh, establish a doctrine. And then, but what is interesting is when you get into the, the intertestamental period, the New Testament period, we have the Sadducees. And what is, what's the comment about them, uh, the way the New Testament authors describe them? They don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they also don't believe in the afterlife or angels. So my question is, why be of any religion if there's just nothing beyond the grave? So it's very interesting. 
any, any group that embraces a liberal theology will always deny um, central doctrines. And the Sadducees were definitely a more liberal um, side of things in the first century. But the majority of all first century Jews believed in the resurrection, uh, but it's not really defined well until um, Jesus and then Paul. Let's move on. This is the most interesting part of this whole chapter. Listen to the language. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. That means all of the earth's guilt will come to the surface. And so all of the past sins of the earth, all of the present sins of the earth will all be punished at one time. No guilt will be concealed. Now, this is interesting. The song ends with an an exhortation or an instruction to the Jews. uh, And the, the instruction here is actually reminiscent of the first Passover night in the land of Egypt. You remember, prior to the final judgment of the Egyptians, The Lord told the children of Israel to kill the Passover lamb and to wipe its blood on the doorposts and lentils of their houses so that the destroyer would not enter their houses and strike them as he intended to do to the firstborn among the Egyptians. That's in Exodus 12, verse 23. The Jews were to enter their dwelling that evening and they were not to exit their home until the morning. So they were essentially hiding themselves until the indignation was past. And then that night, at midnight, the Lord came out of his place and he struck all the firstborn of Egypt. Well, another judgment is coming, but this time God will strike the whole earth. But before he does, he encourages his people to once again enter their chambers, shut their doors to hide themselves, that the indignation might pass over them. But this time, God will not pass over them because of the blood of an animal. He will pass over them this time because of the blood of Christ, in whom Israel at this time will be trusting in. Okay? And once they've hidden in their chambers, whatever that means, the Lord is going to come out of his place, and he's going to punish the entire earth for its iniquity. Yeah. Now, this can only refer to Revelation chapter 19 and the events that lead up to it when Christ returns and treads the wine press, uh, the wine press of the wrath of God. This, this, it's the only way, it's the only thing to fit that with. So Jesus will, at that time, he's going to judge the wicked and he's going to deliver his people. Yeah. So believing Israel at that time will be present for the judgment, that, but they'll be protected from it as they were in Egypt. It's very interesting. They will be protected from judgment only because Christ was judged in their place. So Paul says that um, Christ has delivered us from the wrath which is to come. Uh, The reason for that is because, you know, if Christ suffered the penalty for our sin, if we then become um, exposed to judgment, that's double jeopardy, and it's contrary to justice. And so God will ensure that all who are under the blood of Christ will never experience judgment. It's just be contrary to his nature. Very interesting, huh? Okay, so since chapter two of Isaiah, we've been looking at a number of uh, different prophecies 
referring to the end times. Uh, you, you hear the term eschatology, the study of end times. Uh, the eschaton means the end. Um, we've been looking at those, all of the events, and what we found from the very beginning is that Jerusalem and Judah, uh, ethnic Israel, are at the, at the center of it all. We've explored prophecies that deal with Christ's first coming, and we've looked at prophecies that consider his second coming, his government, his, um, his justice, his judgment. We've considered the prophecies about God's righteousness covering the earth, and then uh, even to the extent of restoring the Edenic state. Um, all of them, of course, refer to the future, um, and all of them obviously fit into some kind of sequence, some kind of sequence. Uh, I think that's easy enough to understand, but it's, it's actually where each event fits into the overall sequence that is not so easy uh, to put together. So what I would like to do next week is take all the details of what we've examined so far, because I don't want you guys to get lost in the details, and I'm going to try to put them together in a biblical and historical and logical sequence. Okay, now, I don't know where some of them go. Is that honest enough for you? I don't want to be so arrogant as to say, I know exactly where all this goes and how it'll all just unravel in the eschaton. I don't know. But I'd like to take all of the data that we've seen so far and kind of put it on the canvas as we've been talking about and see what kind of picture that we have. Um, I do know, I think I know for the most part, the sequence, but I don't know a lot of the details in between. And I'll just be honest with you when I don't know where something goes. But um, it's not going to be a full picture, uh, but uh, we got to start somewhere, right? So let's do our best to put it together and see what happens. Um, now, real quick, last week before I started, I asked a few questions to you guys. The questions are like this. How do we respond to the Lord's righteous indignation and the judgment of the wicked and unbelieving? How do we respond? You know, what goes through our mind when we read the things about God's judgment? Because what we believe about God's judgment and also what we believe about God's character will ultimately determine how we respond to it. So when you read the judgments, do you see God's judgments as extreme? Uh, do you see them as cruel? Do you believe that God's judgment is merely necessary? Or do you believe that God's judgment is good? Now, some people solve it all, they think, and they say the God of the Old Testament is mean and vindictive and cruel and everything else, but the God of the New Testament is benevolent and gracious and kind. Nobody in here believes that, right? That there's two different gods or that he's somehow changed, even though, like we just read from James 1, that in whom is no shadow of turning, he changes not. He's, he's immutable, as we say. Um, yeah, it's the same God. And in fact, when you read 2 Thessalonians 1 and Revelation 14 and other passages, you don't see that there's a difference with the God of the Old Testament. He is just uh, through and through. Um, so something to think about. One of the striking features of the book of Revelation is the occasion for which the angels of heaven praise God. And the reason for which they worship and the reason that they encourage others to worship uh, is not what we typically have in mind uh, and it's not typically how we worship God on Sunday mornings. But listen to what Revelation 19, 1 through 5 says about God's judgment. 
It says, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation, and glory, and honor. And the glory is doxa. That's where we get doxology. And honor and power belong to the Lord our God because true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he's avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. When God delivers his final blow to wicked humanity, the heavens erupt in praise. But you guys, it'll be at this simultaneous to this that the song of Isaiah 26 will erupt here on earth. It's very interesting. So judgment isn't the, the negative or bad form of justice. It's, it's an expression of God's righteousness by which he's going to purge the world of all that injures, of everything that defiles. It's how the victim experiences mercy and relief from evil. It's how evil is currently kept in check and how it will ultimately be destroyed. And therefore, God should be admired for his justice. He should be praised and exalted for his goodness when he executes judgment. And I have the conviction that we should be looking to Isaiah and we should be looking to the angels for the proper response to God's judgment. Amen? That is the practice that we should follow. If you want more examples of that, it's of God being praised for his, his justice and judgment. Uh, Revelation 11, 15 through 19, and chapter 14, verse 7, chapter 15, verse 4, chapter 18, verse 20, just on and on and on. And it's all angelic hosts praising God for that. Uh, if you want one that's, I think, harder to read, I mentioned it last week, that's the song of Deborah in the book of Judges. Um, her song is, I don't know, it seems pretty harsh to me. Um, not sure I could quite worship like that yet. And maybe that says something about me. So anyway, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. And next week, we'll try to put together some eschatological events in regard to Israel and judgment. So, all right. Well, Lord, I just pray that, I mean, we, of course, we want you to come back. And we want the earth to be filled with righteousness. But Lord, in order to achieve all of that, um, judgment stands between that and, and what we have now. And Lord, I, I pray that we would better grasp your character in, in light of how you judge. Lord, you, your, your holiness demands that, that all the earth, all humanity, all of creation be purged of evil so that you can bring it more into your image, which is without spot or blemish. It's, it's righteous through and through. It's holy. So Lord, help us to, to be able to look at the righteousness of judgment and praise you for it, even in advance, as Isaiah did in chapter 25 and 26, looking forward even to it. As John said, even so, Lord, come, knowing that when you come, you will, you will judge. So Lord, help us to understand that. And Lord, I pray that as we try to take the biblical data in regard to the end, uh, help us to put it all together, to, to have a better understanding. And... Uh, 
to be more assured of your promises, not just, of course, to Israel, but to us, to praise you for it. Lord, to even, even more look forward to it, and especially as our world just becomes more evil. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.